If you please turn open to uh, John chapter 2 and verse 13, or turn to page 7 uh, in your worship guide where you will find the text uh, that we'll be looking at this morning. And we're going to be covering a good portion of Scripture this morning, but I'm not going to read um, every single verse. But if you have your Bible or worship guide uh, open, you can kind of follow along to see the whole context of the story. But we're starting uh, in John 2, uh, verse uh, 13. Uh, Now, if you were here last week, you may remember that we had a little sidebar conversation about the Passover, about this uh, festival, this celebration uh, that the Jewish people would have each year to celebrate the fact that God had rescued them from slavery out of Egypt. And when we pick up the story here in, in John 2, Jesus and his crew are on his way into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So they're on their way into the city with pretty much everybody else. I mean, in the city of Jerusalem, there were probably about 80 or 100,000 people that lived in Jerusalem full time, and there were up to 4 million uh, uh, Jews that would be spread out in the land around Jerusalem. And a ton of them would come back for Passover. One historian I read said that there were recorded instances of that three million people came back to Passover. Now imagine you, uh, you're in a city of 80,000, 80, and for one week you, it turns into a city of three million, 80,000. So it's pandemonium, right? You've got, you've got to imagine the chaos in the environment in Jerusalem. But it's a celebration. Everybody's excited to be there. Everybody wants to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. And the place to be in Jerusalem during the Passover is the temple. Because that's where people would go to make their sacrifices before they they go to celebrate the Passover meal with their family. And so everybody would be kind of jamming into this small little temple area. And it had been built out with these large courtyards to try to accommodate all the people. Now, Now, when the people come to the temple, they would come to make sacrifices. But a lot of people didn't bring their sacrifices with them, and so people had to buy their sacrifices in the temple courts. The problem was that you couldn't use Roman money. Anything that had the emperor's face on, you couldn't use as currency inside the temple. So so not only do you have people trying to buy all kinds of animals, all kinds of food, all kinds of whatever you've got to buy in the temple, they couldn't use their money. So so they'd have these currency exchange stations about the place in, in order to exchange the money. And so it turned into a little bit of a racket where people were able to jack up the prices of the animals and jack up the prices of the currency because they could. It's like an airport, right? It's crowded. Uh, the food's expensive, and you don't ever want to exchange money there. But, but sometimes you're kind of stuck, and you have to do it. You, you don't have a choice. And, 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 and so the environment is just chaotic. I want you to just imagine what it, what it must have been like with all of these people jamming in, and there's this loud din of noise as people are jostling about and yelling about their different prices for their different animals, and there are oxen and sheep and pigeon and all the sounds and smells that go along with that. So the people are making a commotion, the animals are making a commotion, all of this, and Jesus walks into this environment in the temple with his disciples. How does Jesus respond to this environment? Well, he responds as any rational person would. John 2, verse 15. 
and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So he drove them out with a whip. And this is a premeditated whipping. Think about it. Jesus goes into the temple, sees this whole thing taking place, and he makes a whip. He takes the time to make a whip. Gets a bunch of cords out. Starts braiding them together. Guys are like, what are you doing? I'm making a whip. And so he makes a whip. And then it says he drove them all out of the temple along with the sheep and oxen, which means that the first group that he whipped were the people. He's whipping the people out along with the oxen and the sheep. And then he does what we've seen in every movie. When you want to, you know, when you want to create total pandemonium, what do you do? You dump money out on the ground, right? So he flips the tables over, and all the money from the tables goes clattering to the ground, which probably created even more pandemonium, pandemonium in the middle of this. And this is how Jesus launches his ministry in Jerusalem. He's ticked. Get these out of here, Jesus cries. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? Now notice what he just said. He's declaring right there in Jerusalem at the beginning of his ministry, I am the son of God. Now is this compatible with your image of Jesus? I mean, what sort of Jesus is this who whips people and drives them out? The answer is that this is the kind of Jesus who hates fake external religion that takes advantage of people and effectively blocks access to God. Because that's really what's taking place here. And he cannot stand it. And so he, he responds in this really shocking and disruptive way. And the religious guys then come up to Jesus at this point and they're like, all right, so... So, so what right do you have to do all of this? Show us a sign. Now, the reason they ask for a sign is because in Judaism, well, they love signs, right? I mean, they, they're, they're signs... Everywhere in the Old Testament, I mean, all of the plagues that God used to, to, to set the people free... Uh, from Egypt were, were a sign. The whole Passover was about, was about how God saved his people who put the blood on the doorway um, of, of their houses. And you can listen to that uh, sermon last week if you missed that one. But there's, this, there's the parting of the Red Sea and there's all this provision of manna, right? There were all of these signs. And to the Jewish people, a sign, a miracle, was like a prophet's passport. It was like his credential. It was like the way for him to authenticate himself as a true messenger from God. And so the religious leaders come to Jesus and they say, what gives you any right to do what you're doing in the temple? Show us your passport. Show us your credentials. They say, show us a sign. And Jesus in response says this. He basically says, all right, I'll show you a sign. But this one's going to take a little bit of audience participation. What I'm going to need for you guys to do is to tear down this temple and then I'll build it in three days. That'll be your sign if you want one. This is, this is 
verse 19 and 20, Jesus answered them, to destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And what they didn't mention is that it had taken eight years just to collect the, all the materials. And what they didn't mention is that it took 10,000 guys to build it. It has taken us 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? And the Jewish leaders are just left scratching their heads by this. They cannot understand what what Jesus could possibly mean. And in case we kind of find ourselves as readers in the same boat, John explains it for us in verse 21 and 22 because John figures it out later when he realizes that Jesus was not talking about that temple, but Jesus was talking about his body as a temple and that Jesus went to, when Jesus went to the, the cross and died. And the, it was at that time that the Jewish leaders destroyed his temple. And he was raised on the third day, rebuilding that temple. And at that time, no one understood what Jesus was saying. But when Jesus was later raised from the dead, his disciples remembered his teaching and understood. But Jesus is like, do you want a sign? This is the sign. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. That is what authenticates my message. Now check this out. Verse 23, it says, now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, so now he's left the temple and he's gone into the city, many believed in his name when they saw, what? The signs that he was doing. I love this. A bunch of guys asked Jesus for a sign. He's like, I'm not giving you a sign. And then a bunch of people don't ask for signs, and he shows them some signs. And John doesn't tell us what the, what, what the signs are, but so we can just kind of presume from other biblical texts it was similar to other things that he did, healing the blind and and, and, and causing the deaf to be able to hear and, and causing the lame to be able to walk and, and these sorts of things. And people begin to say, oh my, you really are the Messiah. And they began to declare, you are the Messiah. You are the Passover lamb that the Passover celebrates. But this early in his ministry, Jesus has an interesting reaction. It's, it's easy to read over this. In verse 24, it says, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all the people... He knew all the people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he, he himself knew what was in man. That's a weird little commentary that John gives us there, right? I mean, what is he saying? He's saying that people began to believe he was the Messiah. But he didn't trust himself to them. Why? Well, it's, it's because he knows what we're like. Jesus knows what we will see again and again and again throughout the book of John, that people are drawn to Jesus. But then Jesus says something that offends them and they leave. There's this kind of, and there's this kind of ebb and flow of people coming and going. And this early on in his ministry, Jesus, it says, did not entrust himself to them because he knew their, their, he, he knew their uncertainty and their fickleness. John 3, 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said, to him. Now let's stop there for a second. So we've got this guy, he's a religious leader, and he comes to Jesus by night. And I used to always think that the reason he came at night was because he was kind of like a rogue Pharisee, right? He wasn't allowed to talk to Jesus, and so he's trying to sneak around at night and all of that. But I don't necessarily think that's the case. Kind of working my way through John here, this is so early in Jesus's ministry that people aren't really opposing him yet. In fact, the religious leaders, all they've done so far is, is have asked them in the, in the temple, listen, sh show us your passport. Would you show us a sign? We're trying to figure you out. And then Jesus 
says, I'm not going to show you a sign. But then later on, they heard that he did some signs. And so it was kind of like they heard about that. And so they then loop around and they send this guy to talk to him. And the reason he talks to them at night, I think, is just because he wants to get a private conversation. In the chaos of the environment of Jerusalem, the way it is, he says, okay, can we just have this like, little private conversation? He's not rogue. I believe he was sent by the other guys. Because look at this. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we, right? So he's there as a a representative of others. I believe he's there for all the religious leaders. We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he's like, listen, we we heard about these signs that you've been doing, these, these miraculous things that you've been doing, and we know that no one can do this unless he comes from God. We asked for your passport, and you didn't give it to us, but we heard you showed your passport to some other people. And, and he doesn't even get around to asking a question, and Jesus answers his question that he doesn't ask. Verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again. That is the Single greatest Christian cliche, and it has gotten a really bad rap. Uh, for, for a lot of people, they, they think of Christianity this way, that there's like the regular Christians over here, and then there's the born-again Christians over here. And uh, the regular Christians are not weird, and the born-again Christians, they're weird. And the regular Christians, they kind of have a, a private faith and they keep it to themselves and they don't really bother anyone. And the born-again Christians, well, they're like fanatics and they want to. And the problem is we allow culture to define what born-again is instead of the guy who came up with the idea. It's Jesus' term, so let's let Jesus define what it is. And the fact is that Jesus says right here, if you are a Christian, you're born again. There is no distinction between a a normal, regular Christian and a born-again Christian. A Christian is, by definition, definition, someone who is born again. The problem is, Nicodemus had never heard this term before, and he doesn't have all of the baggage that we have, and so he poses the very reasonable question to Jesus. He says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He's like, it's kind of absurd absurd what you're saying, Jesus. Am I supposed to just get back into my mom? Is, Is that what I'm supposed to do? To him, it's a a ridiculous statement. And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit." Notice what he says. You must be born again to see the kingdom of God. And you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. What that means is simply this. If God is out there somewhere, the only hope you have to even see this kingdom, the only hope that you have to enter this kingdom is by being born again. It's the very definition of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be a Christian. And then Jesus defines it. He says, listen, you must first be born of flesh and water. That's your physical birth. And then 
You must be born a second time in a spiritual sense. You have a spiritual birth. In other words, Jesus is indicating that it's not enough for someone only to be born naturally. He or she must also be born supernaturally. And then he says to Nicodemus, don't marvel at this. He's like, what I'm talking about, it's, it's actually not that hard. He's like, listen, it's like the wind. God's spirit is like the wind. You can't see the wind, but you can see the effects of the wind. And we all know that experience, right, of being, you know, in a strong wind. And, 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 and we can't see the wind, but we can see the, the effects of the wind all around us. And what Jesus says to Nicodemus is, listen, when you are born again, The Spirit will do some work in you, and you're going to be able to see the effects of that. But you're not going to be able to see the Spirit himself at work. And that's what this whole born-again thing is. It's something that happens inside of us. It's the granting of, of new life, new spiritual life. And you may not be able to see the Spirit, but you're able to see the effects of what he does as he brings new birth spiritually. And then Nicodemus asks, how can these things be? And Jesus gently then rebukes Nicodemus. Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. What he's saying here is, Nicodemus, there is a gap here in your understanding. And the reason you can't understand these things is because you haven't been to heaven. I have. I started there. So I'm the one with authority, and I can connect the dots because I get the whole picture. I get the whole plan. And so then, for Nicodemus, right, here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he connects the dots of what it means to follow him and what God's plan is for the world. Let me read you what, it, what he says to him, and then we'll spend a few minutes um, unpacking it. He says, as, 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 And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil for everyone who does wicked things, hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, there's a lot in there, I know, but let's let's just briefly unpack it, and and we're going to work through it backwards. You may remember the very first week of this series um, in, in the Gospel of John, that John gave us, we looked at his reason for writing the entire Gospel. The reason for his writing of this entire account is that he wanted you to have life. He wanted you to have life. And he believed that the only way you can have true life 
is through the true light who is Jesus. And so believing in Jesus leads to life. And he shows this uh, here. So let's, let's work through this passage backwards, starting with the last two verses. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be ex- exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, we're going we're gonna to cover this a lot more next week. But doesn't this concept ring true? When, when we do something wicked or something wrong, we want to hide. Is that not just generally true? I mean, even from the, the time children are very little, right? They, they, they know that you're not supposed to poop in their pants, and so a little toddler stands behind the couch to do it, right? Why? Why? Because they know they're doing something wrong. They've got to hide to do it. Right? So from the time that we're very little, this is who we are. We like to hide when we want to do something wrong. So I was recently reading uh, an article uh, by someone who was talking about the most common sins um, that Jesus um, references in the gospel. And I want, to, I want you to think about in your mind, what would, be, what would you think would be the most common sins that Jesus was Jesus references. Now, now I haven't double-checked his, his work, but what would you imagine are the top two? He says the top two are spiritual hypocrisy and spiritual pride. So these two are sin. So let's just use the word Jesus uses here, wickedness. And let's take that as our example, and let's apply them to, to, to this context. In what way, when we have spiritual hypocrisy and spiritual, or spiritual pride, do we like to live in the darkness instead of the light? Do we like to hide and not bring it out into the open? Well, what is spiritual hypocrisy? Well, spiritual hypocrisy is giving others the impression that we are holier, that you are holier than you are. And spiritual pride is saying the key to holiness is being like me. And so spiritual hypocrisy is trying to to fake everybody else out, and spiritual pride is when you fake yourself out. So listen to this verse again. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Okay, so how do we apply this? So hypocrisy, let's start there. You know, I like to think of myself as a recovering hypocrite. And the reason why is because the biggest historic struggle in my Christian life is precisely the one Jesus railed against the most. Which means if you come to me and say, I'm a sinner, I'm likely going to say two things, me too, and I'm worse than you. Because this is... Jesus' number one sin that he lays out there, and it's the one that I struggle with the most. Okay, so in what context then does God shine his light on my life where there's this gap between who I am and where I, you know, what I would prefer people to see uh, that I am? Well, I have an example that's a bit uncomfortable to share, but this morning just so happens to be my 25th anniversary in pastoral ministry. So what better way to celebrate than share my own greatest weakness and struggle? Because over the years, I've had different conversations that could be described as being similar um, in some fashion to the one I'm about to describe. But, but, but the, 
one of the conversations I specifically remember, it's a conversation I had with someone a number of years ago. And this is when my kids were, were much, much younger and they were all at home. And, and someone came up to me, a, a guy who just said, hey, Daryl, um, I'm a dad and I'm, I'm kind of intimidated by this idea of discipling my kids. And, 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 and I want to do a daily devotion with my kids. And I just, I don't know how to get started. Could you help? And so my initial reaction was to want to give him a bunch of tips and techniques on how to do devotions with his kids. And then I realized that that would not be truthful. So the answer I gave to him was, me too. I'm intimidated in doing this effectively with my children, and I'm woefully inconsistent and sporadic in doing daily devotions with my kids. I've never been able to figure out how to do it consistently and effectively. And he was like, like, that's not helpful. But... <laughs> But you see, because I'm a recovering hypocrite, when my initial instinct is to make myself look b better than I am, sometimes I try to respond by, by just throwing the lights on about how messed up I really am. And that's how I deal with the issue in my life, this ongoing battle. Now, I'm not saying that it's sinful not to do devotions with, with your kids every single day. I think there's great ways to disciple your kids without a consistent daily devotion, but... The sin was that I wanted to present myself as better than I was. And I felt that right away in my heart. I wanted to hide. I wanted to stay in the darkness. I wanted to say I'm holier than I actually am. That's hypocrisy. What about pride? Well, what, what does pride do? Well, the darkness that we love with pride is simply believing that our spiritual walk is superior to other people's. This is a, a danger, especially for those who've been Christians for a, for a very long time. This is a danger for, for those of us who've seen a lot of spiritual growth in our lives. And, and maybe we've developed some, some great spiritual disciplines in our lives that have really transformed who we are. And, and what happens is at the tail end of that, we, we begin to look down on others who are not as spiritually mature as us. Or have developed different spiritual habits or disciplines that we have. And we create this measuring stick of spiritual maturity. Guess what it is? It's us. And even if we don't say it out loud, there's a smugness that we have that we, that we, when we look at other people. And really, if we're honest, we're saying, you would, be, you, you would be so much better off if you ran your Christian life the way I ran my life. Yeah, right. So like all of you who were smugly thinking when I was sharing about my struggles with devotions a few minutes ago, I know what you were thinking. You're thinking, yeah, what a crappy Christian, let alone pastor he is. You, you, you know, I could show him how it's done. Well, yeah, that smugness doesn't feel so comfortable now, does it? Because it's spiritual pride. Now, as I was preparing this section, I don't know about you, but as I was preparing this section... Even as I was teach, teaching through it just in the last few moments, I, I feel this kind of weight settle in, right? It's like you begin to go, I really am a sinner. I really do have some wickedness in me that I like to hide. And, 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 and you feel this weight of condemnation settle in on you. But, but this is the good news. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, 
but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed the name of the only Son of God. Listen to that. There is only one true condemnation, and that is not believing in Jesus. That's it. Now this passage does beg the question, if Jesus did not come into the world uh, to condemn the world, why are some condemned? And that's why we need to nerd out on the grammar sometimes. You really have to pay attention to it, otherwise you'll really miss important things. Look at this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him, in Jesus, is not condemned. Is not. You believe in Jesus, you're not condemned period. Nobody can throw anything else at you. Nobody can throw accusations at you. Nobody can shine the light, the law at you and say that you are condemned. You are not condemned, period. The word is. You is not condemned. I know you're now all geeking out on the grammar. You is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Notice the word already. What does that mean? It means that the movement is from from condemned to not condemned, right? See, in our culture, we tend to think of ourselves as not condemned. You know, I'm pretty moral. I'm pretty good. I'm born innocent. I'm not really condemned. But really, the Bible teaches us that we all start out already condemned. And it is belief in Jesus that moves us from here to not condemned. Because of the most famous Bible verse, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Everlasting life comes through believing in Jesus. And and Nicodemus had no idea what Jesus was talking about, which is why Jesus started this entire thing with an Old Testament reference. I don't know if you caught this, but he threw down this Old Testament reference so that Nicodemus would have a frame of reference by which he could understand it. This is what he said. He said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, Nicodemus got that, but those of us who haven't read Numbers 21 in a long time don't. And by the way, the, the, that's the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, and 21 is the chapter. You should look it up uh, when you go home. It's a great story. What happens is that the children of Israel were set free from Egypt, and now they're in the desert. And they didn't have any food because they're in the desert. And so God starts providing this miraculous food called manna. And every day they get this manna down from heaven and it's sweet. It tastes like honey and they can eat it every single day. He took care of them. It was a daily miracle. And yet a sign was not enough for them. And so they asked for another sign. They said, God, well, if you're really for us, we know you're feeding us and everything. But if you're really for us, will you help us beat these people and take Take over this land. And so God gives them that sign, and so they take over the land. But that sign is not enough. And it says in Numbers 21 that they grew impatient with God. They yelled at God. They spit out the food that God miraculously provided them because one sign is never enough. And multiple signs are never enough. If you're always demanding a sign from God, you will never stop demanding a sign from God. And so God finally, he just... he. He sends snakes into the camp, and they start biting people, and they're called fiery serpents, which is not a particularly good thing to come into your camp. 
And some people started to die. And, and I know that sounds terrible, but it took this for the people to see their sin. And isn't that how it is with us sometimes? Sometimes we have to get to the, a really bad place before we realize our sin. And they realized their sin, and so they called out to God to save them. And then God told Moses to do something absolutely crazy. He said, I want you to make a bronze serpent. And I want you to put it on a pole. And I want you to lift that pole up in the middle of all the people. And anyone who looks at that pole is going to be fine from the snake bite. I mean, it's almost like an idol, right? We're, 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 you're, you're making a bronze idol. Not only an idol, but an idol of a snake. And a snake from the beginning of Genesis represented evil and vileness, and it was uncle an unclean animal to the Jews. All of these things. And he says, I want you to lift this up in the middle of the camp. And those who look at it will be saved. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, I am the snake. On the cross, I become everything that is evil and vile and wicked. I will become sin. So that when I am lifted up and people look at me, they will have eternal life. And that's the gospel that Jesus presents to Nicodemus to launch his ministry. Let's pray.